The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. This is a difficult sermon to, for it to be a success. Um, and that's because like, there's, there's a lot of truth here in this, in this passage. We're actually in the whole chapter. We didn't want to... Uh, just bore you guys out of your whole mind by having to read it all and, and you guys miss the, the heart of what's going on here. But uh, there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of truth, but really probably more than just the truth or, or maybe just as important as the truth that's contained in this passage that we're going to be covering this morning, that probably the most important thing for us to get out of this is a, is a sense. It's a, it's a taste. It's a, a feeling that needs to be conveyed, but my words aren't able to convey that to you guys this morning. So I'm just going to ask if you're a believer this morning, if you'll pray uh, with me as we continue speaking or guiding ourselves through this this passage, that uh, you would pray that God would come and visit us, His Holy Spirit would come and visit us in our midst and give us that sense, that feeling that that needs to be conveyed for us to really get what is going on in this passage. And uh, I also pray that if you would also pray for any of us in this, hopefully there are people here in our midst uh, that aren't believers. And if you are, we, we welcome you here. And we pray that you would have a sense this morning as well of uh, what we're talking about. Um, I, don't, I don't mean that to say that in a melodramatic way. I'm, I'm asking that we would pray that because uh, this passage and the next couple of chapters is what many people believe to be the heart of the Old Testament. I would call it the heart. This particular chapter, chapter 19 of Exodus, is sort of the heartbeat of the Old Testament. Because there's something here that's almost lost in the modern Western church, and certainly among modern and Western Christians. Uh, the, the church has come to be viewed as something that's to be marketed and packaged in a way to make it most appealing to the most potential customers. That's kind of somehow what church has become here in America, just like a lot of most everything else in America is that slickly and nicely packaged to the most uh, largest group of, of people that you can possibly find. The gospel, the very word of God in that scenario becomes something like a, a commodity, it, we have impressively well-crafted and orchestrated what's now called, you don't go to a, a church service, you go to a, quote, worship experience that's been carefully crafted and orchestrated in order to elicit a particular response from every person that attends. But what we see in this passage, or not the what, but the who we encounter in this passage, along with the Israelites, quickly melts away all that nonsense. Because it's here with the Israelites that we encounter burning and shaking the whole entire mountain, thundering amidst uh, lightning and thick smoke to deafening sounds of angelic trumpet, the living, pulsating presence of the one and only true God. These Israelites are gathered now in the wilderness, and it's been three months since God has freed them from 400 years of slavery. He's rescued them through 
uh, 10 progressively uh, harsher plagues. And by, by the end of the 10th plague, they are ejected out of Egypt. The most powerful nation in the face of the earth has bowed their knee to the God of the Israelites. And the Israelites, a bunch of nobodies, a bunch of slaves who had no possessions, no rights, are now have basically won a battle for being freed from the most powerful nation in the face of the earth. That army then, when they think more about it and decide that they don't want to let them go, the army comes and chases them. The people of Israel are stuck by the Red Sea. God splits the Red Sea. They walk through on dry land. They get to the other side, and the waters come crashing down upon the Egyptian army. Then the people are in the wilderness, and they don't have any food, and they don't have any water. And God says, I'm going to feed you. And every, every morning they wake up, except on the Sabbath morning, they wake up and there's this like bready, wafery, honey thing. We don't even know exactly what it is or what it was. It was like bread. It was like crackers. It tasted like honey. All gathered on the, on the ground. All out on the ground, they would gather it and eat. He feeds them from heaven. And when they are thirsty and there's not enough water for that great crowd of people in the middle of the desert, all of a sudden the water comes rushing out of a rock in order to water the people so they can drink. They're fed from heaven and they're watered from a rock. And now three months in, they've, been, they've already been complaining, they've already been griping, they've already been whining. What God's doing is, see, these people have been 400 years in Egypt, they've been around 400 years of polytheism. That's worshiping multiple gods. That's really not too far from the current environment we find ourselves in in our culture. Uh, we don't have idols on every corner. I've been to India. There's idols all around the place that people would bring food or flowers or other gifts to in order to engender their favor. But we serve lots of different idols. And it's our sort of like our modus operandi to say, hey, whatever works for you works for you. And I'm not going to say anything bad about you. Whatever works for me works for me. And I'll live my life the way I want to live my life. And you live the way, your life the way that you want to live your life. And hey, we'll be all okay. Let's not judge each other. Let's just all find our way along the way. We live in a polytheistic society just the way the, Egypt, the Egyptians did and the Israelites did as they lived there. And after 400 years of worshiping multiple gods and thinking they were all equal, God is now has them in the wilderness to teach them about himself. So we're going to see three things from this passage as God is teaching the Israelites about himself and is teaching us about himself. Number one, God is calling a people to himself. Number two, God is holy and number three, there are two ways to approach him. Number one, God is calling a people to himself. Number two, God is holy. Number three, there are two ways to approach him. First of all, God is calling a people to himself. This is really what the Bible is all about. The Bible begins and ends with this truth. He is calling a people to himself. He creates Adam and Eve in his image, and they're perfect, and everything's happy going on in the garden, and yet they reject God. They decide to go their own way, and everything all right off the bat, it's all the, wheel, the wheels are falling off the cart right off the bat. Yet God, even in his punishment, as he sends them out of the Garden of Eden, God speaks to Adam and Eve and he says, 
hey, I'm going to make a way. Don't worry about it. Well, don't, we're not worried about it. It may not be the right term, but I'm going to make a way. I'm going to provide for you. God then later on, he calls Abraham to himself and says, I'm going to make you, uh, all your descendants, a great nation, and, and they're going to, you're going to be my special people. And yet Abraham and his son and grandson and children after that, they continually tried to mess the whole thing up. Abraham, who is like the most revered religious symbol in all of history because um, almost the three major religions on the face of the earth all recognize Abraham as a holy man. Abraham tried to pimp out his wife. And his descendants after him, Jacob, uh, Jacob tricked Esau. Israel's sons, Jacob's sons, they sell out. They sell their brother into slavery and then tell their dad he was killed by a wild animal. They are not getting off to an auspicious start. They end up in Egypt and they end up being slaves and God comes and saves them. He never gives up on them. Even though we continue as human beings to run the opposite way, he continually is calling a people to himself. That's why in verse four of this passage, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. It's the great story of scripture. Though we are running and are far away from God, we are broken, we are far away, we are running the opposite way, yet the story of scripture is he is calling us, not only calling us to himself, but he is then coming to us and bringing us on eagle's wings to himself. Today, do you hear that calling? Maybe you're far from God. Maybe you never placed your faith and trust in him as your savior. Do you hear that calling to you this morning? Or maybe if you are a believer this morning, in your Egypt, in your wandering in the wilderness, do you hear him calling? Maybe you're in a, a rut. We would call it a rut. Maybe your heart has been hardened. Maybe you're living in compromise with sin. And you know. Though you're going through all the motions on the outside Inside, you are far away from him. Do you hear his calling to you this morning? Do you look back through your whining and complaining and unbelief and see how he has borne you as on eagle's wings to himself? Think about your story. How you were far from God. And all that he went through to come after you in your brokenness, in your sin, in your shame, in your darkness, when you were running hard the other way, when there was no hope, he came after you and bore you as on eagle's wings to himself. It is what he has been doing from the very beginning of time. It's what he is still doing for you and for me. But like the Israelites, they, they have been born as on eagle's wings out of Egypt and they have been delivered and now they're in the wilderness, we're likely to miscalculate what God is doing and what God is all about. 
And we're likely to miscalculate what God is doing and what he is all about because we're likely to start to think that the story is about us. I don't know about you and what your life is like, but I know for me, I'm far more likely to think about myself as a a little bit more important, a, a little more central to the story than I really am. I'm likely to begin to think that the story or that life is about me. And and in that scenario, then, God becomes a servant to me. He came and he died for my sins because I needed help and I'm worth that. And so he came and gave himself for me. And every time I kind of get in some trouble, I cry out to him and ask him to help and he comes and helps me because somehow I think, though I wouldn't put words to it because I've been around church long enough or maybe you and I, maybe you would, you would say, hey, God kind of owes this to me to come and help me. That's how I begin to kind of think about myself and the story. But really the story is about God. You know who the hero of the story is in this book of Exodus? It's not Moses. He's messed up and he will mess up in the future. It's not the people of Israel. Look, they were no great prize for God. They were a bunch of ungrateful slaves. They brought nothing to the table. God is the hero of the story who chooses a people who have nothing going for them to save for himself and call them and draw them to himself. And that's the same story for you and me. We don't have, look around. We're sort of a ragtag group of people, not just in this room, but in general as humanity, as human beings. Have you seen human beings Have you watched the news one single day? You see what stupid things that we do over and over again, what horrible things we do to each other over and over again. We don't have a lot going for us. And yet he comes after us to draw us to himself. That's to his credit, not to ours. He is the hero and the central character of the story And so through Moses, God calls the people to gather around Mount Sinai in order to meet with them. He wants to meet with his people. He wants to tell them, hey, this is who I am and this is what's going on. This is what's going to happen as we go forward. But there are things that have to be done before that can happen. The people have to be prepared. Did you hear that in the passage that we read? Read the rest of the chapter, all the things that Moses and the rest of the people had to go through in order to prepare them, to get them ready, in order to come and meet God, even though he's calling a people to himself. He calls them to come and meet him, but yet then he says, all right, here's the deal. I'm going to come down on the mountain, and so you guys, you can't touch the mountain, because because uh, that's not going to go well for you. You guys got to go and you got to wash your clothes. You guys have to cleanse yourself, prepare yourself. Moses can come on the mountain, but only Moses. Anybody else touches the mountain, here's what's going to happen. If anybody else comes and touches the mountain, you will die. And if I don't kill you, if my presence, my powerful, holy presence doesn't 
kill you, then you are to kill the person who touches the mountain, but you're not even to touch their body in order to kill them. They have to be prepared. That's because, number two, God is holy. He's calling them to himself. He's delivered them from their bondage, but he's going to make a covenant with them. He's going to make them his people. He took them out of Egypt, but now he's taking them into something, and yet they can't come to the mountain. They can't touch the mountain. They can't get close to him because there's something, there's a barrier, there's there's something, there's a blockage between them and God. God goes through great pains to make this clear over and over again. It's interesting as I'm reading the commentaries about this passage. So God tells him, Moses, hey, you got to consecrate the mountain. That means to set it aside and like put barricades around it, make sure people won't touch it. You got to tell the people go home and wash their clothes and get ready and uh, not to touch another, uh, not to touch a woman. And so you abstain for a while. You got to get clean in order to come to come to me. And then even then, you can't touch the mountain. And then Moses goes up on the mountain, and God says, "Hey, I want you to go back down to the mountain and tell them again for them not to touch the mountain." This is very important. That's because here, as God reveals himself in his glory to his people, his true nature and character is put on display. What we see here is called the holiness of God. Maybe you've heard that term bannered about back and forth in church. You might have grown up in church. I've been around long enough. You've heard about God being holy or the holiness of God. And sometimes we use phrases or words and we don't really know what they mean. But the holiness of God means the otherness of God. It means how God is other than you and me. We meet each other, you and I, and we have different body shapes and different hairlines and different hair color and different skin tone and different tastes and desires. We look different, but there's a sameness to us as we meet each other. We're human beings after all. But God is other than us. To touch him, to hear him, to meet him is to understand that he is a totally different kind of thing than you and me or being than you and me. It's, the, it's his breath, his holiness is his breathtaking godness that makes him God. It's the always surprising, continually awe-inspiring, raw power of a great fire that never burns out, only growing in intensity. It's like a never-ending bolt of lightning. That's the holiness of God. It's the otherness of God. To touch him, to meet him, is to know you've touched something of real substance. There are several things that this encounter told the Israelites about God. First of all, it told them that he is real. Think about it. They had seen him deliver them. But maybe you could explain away the locusts and the water turning into blood and even somehow like the, all the babies dying in Egypt by some sort, of a, some sort of weird virus that happened to hit that very night, I don't know how you would explain the walking through the Red Sea, but maybe after it's all done, you're like, man, maybe, I don't, I don't know what happened there. But all of a sudden, they gather around this mountain, and the mountain 
Smoke comes down, clouds cover it, fire comes down the mountain, there's bolts of lightning, you hear sounds of thunder, there's some sort of a, it says a very loud trumpet blast, it doesn't just blast once, but keeps on blasting, and then the whole mountain is shaking, and then it says there's billows of smoke coming up from the mountain as if it's a furnace or a kiln. And all of a sudden you know, hey, this God is real. The reality of God is rarely apparent to you and me. The earth declares the glory of God, but rarely in the way that you and I want it to declare the glory of God. But he is not an idea or an impersonal force. He is the real creator of, and ruler of heaven and earth. He had delivered the people of Israel with miraculous wonders, yet three months in, they're already complaining, they're already whining, they're already doubting. Hey, you know what? You and I, were in good company. As whiners and doubters and complainers, we fit in a long line of God followers and Christ followers throughout history. Yet on this day, he had their undivided attention. They could interpret it however they liked, why was the mountain smoking and fire and thunders and the, the sound of the trumpets? They could interpret however they liked. But something real was going on. He is real. It's a realness that makes, and this is hard to explain because, because he's not visible and touchable like other things that we see and experience around us in life. But he's so real that it makes your old idea when you meet him, it makes your old idea of reality melt away. Like when you look up, like you're, like you're reading a book and you look up from a novel and like you're reading a piece of fiction and you're like you're enthralled in the story, but then you look up and you realize, oh, this is not real. It, it, when you meet him, he's such a, he's so real that it makes your old reality melt away like when you figure out your oasis in the desert is really just a mirage. That is our life compared to the reality of God. Just a mirage. Just like a novel. My question this morning is, has, how has he shown himself real to you? I want you to think about that. How has he shown himself real to you? Has he shown himself as real to you? How has he shown himself as real to you and yet you have ignored it or continue to ignore it? But here's the follow-up question. Do we live as if the implications of his reality are true? If God is real, the ruler and creator of heaven and earth is real, and all that we hear and read about him in scripture is true. And that should have far-reaching daily implications for everything that we do and think and say and feel. It should have far-reaching implications on every relationship that we have, every thought that we think, every decision that we make about our future, how we view our past. It should have far-reaching implications. But not only did the Israelites see that he is real, but secondly, they saw that he is powerful. 
There were thunders and lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast. The mountain was wrapped in smoke. The Lord descended on it in fire. The mountain smoked like it was burning. The earth quaked, and the people trembled. God is powerful. I mean, like, unimaginably powerful. If you've ever stood at the, near a great waterfall or seen or experienced close at hand a strike of lightning, you have just an inkling sense of the power and majesty of God. Have you ever trembled at the power of God? Most of us feel Incredibly, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us feel most of the time incredibly important and incredibly powerful in our own way most of the time. But sometimes God will let us get a glimpse out of our dreamy facade of importance into his power and his glory. He is real He is powerful, and then he's enthralling. He is enthralling. Mount Sinai, this is incredibly interesting about this passage. Mount Sinai was terrifying on that day. The people quaked or trembled as the earth trembled. It says that. It says the people trembled when when everything was going on. The mountain was wrapped in smoke and the darkness and the gloom and the fire coming down and the smoke going up and the lightning and the trumpet blasts, and yet they had to be warned multiple times not to approach the mountain, and the mountain had to be cordoned off. Isn't that interesting? Even though they were terrified, they had to be warned multiple times not to touch the mountain. You may think that God and religion is for the simple-minded. But if you meet him, or if you met him, you would see that there would be no end of interest and surprise with him. If you could see and meet God, you would see there a depth that is deeper than the deepest ocean. You would see there a vastness that is far superior to the deepness and vastness of space, the outer reaches of space and time, would be to the vastness and interest, interestingness of God as a single note is in an entire symphony. If you were to meet God, you would see that there is no end of surprise and interest in him. Just as the ocean, we, we as human beings, we've lived around and been on and in the oceans for a long time. And yet still they say in the deepest parts of the sea there are incredible things that we still haven't seen and experienced. It's a frontier that we're still discovering and amazed by. And that's just the dinky ocean compared to the vastness of God and his character and nature. He's incredibly enthralling. To go further may mean to great risk to the way you think and live. 
though the alternative suddenly seems unthinkable. As the Israelites stood around that mountain and it quaked and they trembled, to go closer and to meet him might have been incredibly terrifying, but yet there was a drawing there. He's real, he's powerful, he's enthralling, and then he is pure. This is not a purity of mere innocence. It's not like a, res- a great reservoir of water. If you have a great reservoir of water and it could be perfectly uh, purified as water, but yet one drop of impurity was to be dropped in that reservoir, the whole thing is all, it's, it's, it's all affected. It's like the pool in Caddyshack. And you have the, you have the candy bar that's floating there, right? Well, they don't know it's a candy bar. They drain the hot, entire thing and they're scrubbing it all down. They're disinfecting the entire pool. And then he picks it up and eats it and it's really gross and awesome. But if there's one bit of impurity in a great vast clean reservoir of water, the whole thing is dirty. But he's not pure like an innocent kind of pure. He is a living, breathing, pulsating purity. It's likened to fire. In Hebrews, it says that he is a consuming fire. And you and I will, either, will be consumed either in the greatest ecstasy of joy in his presence, in that presence of perfect and burning and pulsating purity, or in the greatest suffering and dread. This is the holiness of God. He is real. He's powerful. He's enthralling. He is pure. It's what makes him unapproachable to us created, sin-marred mortals. So what are we going to do? He's calling a people to himself, but yet he's holy. What are we going to do? Well, there's two ways to approach him. This story in Exodus is really a story about two mountains, not just one mountain. We see in Exodus 19, the Mount, Mount Sinai, it's God comes down upon and speaks to the people. That mountain, they had to be, the mountain had to be consecrated, the people had to be consecrated, they had to be warned not to touch it, and even then, they couldn't, they couldn't come to the mountain even though they had been consecrated and cleansed. Only Moses could go, and later he could bring Aaron with him. It was a holy mountain. And then as Moses, in the next chapter that we'll see next week, as Moses comes down, he brings down a perfect and holy law that says, if you want to be my people, I've chosen you to be my people, but you have to keep this law. And over and over and over again, the Israelites would fail, just as you and I have failed. Mount Sinai is a mountain that's based on your performance and your morality. God is holy, and there's the way to approach him is by obeying and keeping his perfect and holy law, which you and I continually fail in over and over and over again. And yet in Hebrews, we see that there's a tale of two mountains. 
Hebrews 12, 18, for you have not come to what may be touched. He's describing Mount Sinai here. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they cannot endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Yeah, he's going to talk about the other mountain here. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is a story about two mountains. Mount Sinai enrobed in the glory and majesty and holiness of God that was unapproachable by a sinful people. And then Mount Zion, which was the mountain that was at the center of the city of Jerusalem that the temple stood upon. It was a symbol of God's presence among his people. It's a symbol of his church, you and I. To approach God on Mount Sinai was based upon your performance and your morality. That's why nobody else could approach the mountain and touch it. But Mount Zion is based upon something that's been done for you. That's how you approach God. You approach God either based upon your performance and your morality, that's Mount Sinai, or you approach God based upon what he has done for you, Mount Zion. Let's look real quickly as we are rounding the turn here, how he compares the two, the two different mountains, the two different ways that we approach God. Number one, he says, uh, you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, but you've come to the mount and city of the living God. Number two, he says, you've not come to uh, a blazing fire. God's fire, his holiness was blazing upon that mountain. The people found it unapproachable. They couldn't get to it or they would be consumed by it. But we have been, we had come to the Mount Zion, which is filled with innumerable angels. Angels who are, the Bible describes as flames of fire who are given unimaginably to be ministers to you and I, the believers in Christ, to care for us and watch over us. We have not come to darkness and gloom. The mountain was covered in darkness. It was covered with gloom. It was a symbol that God dwells in unapproachable darkness, that there was no way for mankind to get to him. But incredibly, it says that we have come to a, what's called in this passage, a festal gathering. The wording there doesn't really capture what it's trying to convey there. It's saying we have not come to darkness and gloom and a shaking, quaking mountain and Mount Sinai, but we have come to a festival, a party, a Holy convocation, a, a, a 
is it's picturing the, uh, what we na- the early uh, ancestor, what we now call the Olympic Games, when all these cities of Greece, they had a holy area around Mount Olympus that every four or five years they would gather and they would have game, a, a great giant festival where they would have games, feats of strength. Uh, the, the orators would come and, and uh, compete with each other and there would be a general party as they remembered who they were as Grecians. We have come to a festival. We're not gathered around a a mountain that is full of gloom and darkness, that's unapproachable because of God's holiness, but you and I have come to a festival, a party, because the way, the difference, the, the chasm between us and the mountain, between us and God, has been broken down through the person of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he paid for you and me. I wonder this morning, my question is, do you live as if you are gathered at a party? Do you live as if your life is a festival full of joy because the, the barrier has been broken down between you and your holy creator God? He says, we have not come to the tempest, the storm, but we have come to God, the judge of all. And that is good news for you and I this morning if you're a believer in Christ, because we have nothing to fear from the God who is the judge of mankind, because he has poured out his judgment upon Jesus Christ. The judgment and justice that you had coming to you is poured out upon the man, Jesus Christ. We do not gather at a mountain with sounds of trumpets, but we gather at a mountain where we have a new mediator between God and man, go between, between us and him. We do not come to a mountain of a terrifying voice that bellows from it, but we come sprinkled with blood that speaks peace to us. God must be approached by one of these two mountains. Which mountain are you encamped around is the question. But there was a qualification to enter each mountain. Mount Sinai, as they were gathered around, they had to be consecrated and cleaned and only then only Moses and then later Aaron could, approach, could climb the mountain and touch it. In Hebrews 12, 25, it says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. This morning, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I urge you to enter, to approach him through Mount Zion by hearing his word to you, that he is the one true God, that you are in need of a savior and he has provided that for you. And I urge you to place your faith and trust in him. And then let's look at the end of Hebrews 12, verse 28. 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So this morning, as we prepare our hearts for communion, I hope, first of all, the emotion that we would feel, it would be a gratefulness to God. And this morning, maybe if you don't feel a gratefulness to him, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, you don't feel a gratefulness to God for what he has done for you in Christ, I wonder if you would ask him to help you, to stir your heart and your soul so that you would be grateful And then therefore, after that, we would offer worship, our lives to him with reverence and awe, knowing that we, that holy God that stood upon Mount Sinai in burning and thunders and lightnings is now the one that we've been brought near to by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that Uh, Every person here who is a believer in Christ has been brought near by your blood. Uh, We have been sprinkled. There's no longer a commanding, booming voice that's terrifying uh, to us out of the holy mountain. But we gather to a festival, having been sprinkled by your blood hearing the good news of the gospel of what you have done for us. And I pray you would help stir our hearts in gratefulness this morning. You would help us live in a way that reflects a joy at what you have done for us. And that we would live in reverence and awe, knowing that the God who shook the, the earth and will one day shake both the heavens and the earth, dwells within us and among us. In the name of Christ. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.